I absolutely think that this is much more important than one incredibly competent, brave, and remarkable young man. This was a signal to everybody. It was a signal to the West. It was a signal to Putin. It was a signal to the opposition that there's nothing that can be done to ensure their safety, even in the European Union. On the 23rd of May, a Ryanair plane headed to Vilnius from Athens flies over Belarus. As it prepares to enter Lithuanian airspace, a Belarusian MiG-29 instructs the pilots to land in Minsk, the Belarusian capital, warning them that a bomb is on board. As a Ryanair plane lands in Minsk airport, one passenger knows that there's no bomb on board. This man is Roman Protasevich and he's now in a Belarusian jail. He's in a bomb throw though. He's a Belarusian blogger who's had to flee his country following the brutal persecution of political opponents ordered by Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko. Lukashenko has been in office since 1994 and has steadily increased his authoritarian grip on the country. But since last August and the mass protests that followed his official re-election in a rigged process that gave him 80% of the vote, Lukashenko has been acted like a wounded animal. His blatant act of airborne piracy has shed light once again on Europe's last dictatorship. I'm your host, Francois, and I'm so glad to have you on board for this episode of our two fantastic guests, Hanna Lubakova and Vladislav Davidson. Don't forget, if you want to be uncommonly decent and support the show, there's a ton of small things you can do. You can subscribe to the show, and I don't want to spoil anything, but we've got some great episodes coming up. You can rate and review because these always put a smile on our faces and really help the show continue to grow. And most importantly, you can share the show with a friend, you know, the old-fashioned way. Share it with someone you think would make a good match with uncommon decency. Anyways, Belarus, here we come. We are so glad to have a bus. At Hanna Lubakova and Vladislav Davidson. Hanna is a Belarusian freelance journalist and works with Outriders, an international multimedia platform. She's also a non resident fellow of Atlantic Council and a regular international publications such as The Economist or The Washington Post. Vladislav is a Russian American writer and former chief editor of the Odessa Review. He's now the European culture correspondent for the Tablet Magazine and a regular contributor for many publications, including Foreign Policy. Speaking of which, I recommend people give a give a lick a look to his latest Belarus article on foreign policy, which is entitled Belarus is becoming Europe's North Korea. He's also a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council, so this should make for a fun podcast with colleagues. Hannah and Vlad, thank you very much for coming on the show. Uh, let's begin. Last Sunday, on Sunday the 23rd of May, a Ryanair flight headed to Vilnius from Athens was forced to make an emergency landing in Minsk as it was about to leave Belarusian airspace. Once the plane landed, the Belarusian authorities arrested journalist and opposition figure Roman Protasevich. Who is Roman Protasevich? And why would Lukashenko risk so much in order to arrest one journalist? Is he individually such a major threat to the regime? Or should we understand his arrest as being a signal, a warning sent to the opposition both in Belarus and outside of Belarus? Uh, Hannah first, and then we'll circle back to Vlad. Sure. Uh, Roman Protasevich is a blogger, essentially. He's the 26-year-old 
young man who was traveling from Athens to Vilnius, Lithuania, uh, to his home where where he was based. And uh, his only guilt is basically that he was behind this uh, Telegram channel called Nexta, Nexta, which is the kind of most influential one. As uh, at its peak, Nexta had almost 2 million subscribers, which is a lot for a country of 9.5 million, which, which is Belarus. And Roman was uh, crucial. He played a key role during the protests in August when basically uh, there was no internet and Telegram channels were slightly available and all people turned to, to Telegram to get information because, well, they didn't have other sources. And Telegram channels also coordinated the protest in this uh, way that they kind of published information about the location, about the venue, place, spot where the, the, the next protest would take place. And that's how people were aware of, of kind of political activities in the country. But the thing is, well, this was not Roman who asked people to come out to the streets and protest. People just wanted to protest, right? But because Lukashenko is blaming anyone um, but himself for this revolution, for kind of this uh, mobilization, politicization of people, he blamed these uh, two youngsters, uh, Roman Protasevich and his colleague, Stepan Putila, and last year they were added to this KGB terrorist list and there were criminal cases initiated against Roman. And, and the KGB being the secret service of Belarus. Exactly. And, well, on Sunday, the Ryan airplane that um, Roman used was uh, forced down because Lukashenko is just scared of information. He's scared of people who who spread information who tell about the situation both inside the country and outside the country. And that's why Roman became so so dangerous for, for Lukashenko. Um, Vlad, um, we understand that Lukashenko does not like Roman Pratsevich. He sees him as a threat. But to what extent is this also a warning, a larger warning sent to the opposition, both in Belarus and outside of Belarus? Hello, and thank you for having me. I absolutely think that this is much more important than one uh, incredibly competent, brave, and uh, remarkable young man, uh, because uh, ultimately there are a lot of people in the opposition, and you could have gone after any number of people, uh, including, uh, you know, politicians or um, uh, husbands of politicians or exiled members of the opposition. There was a reason that uh, uh, this particular man was was chosen, and he was flying overhead uh, over the territory of Belarus which uh, probably was, uh, you know, could not be predicted, but probably it was a security threat, security risk. He shouldn't have done it. Uh, this was a uh, signal to everybody. It was a signal to the West. It was a signal to Putin. It was a signal to the opposition that they were not safe anywhere, that he can get anyone anywhere, that uh, perhaps a wet job will be the next uh, method of reprisal or deterrence from his side. Uh, this is absolutely a message to the entire opposition that there's nothing that can be done to ensure their safety, even in the European Union. That said, it was also a uh, sort of childish and very much erratic testing of boundaries to see if the European Union would react, would react in a concerted fashion and would react in a very serious fashion, which it's 
seems to be doing. Sure, and and just just to get a better sense of kind of how uh, how the both of you um, uh, assess the sort of the the, the state of uh, uh, repression in, in Belarus at this specific time is crystallized around this uh, particular case, but also in the larger context of say the, the past two to two to five years. Um, I think a lot of people are, are waking up to the to the rogue nature of, of Lukashenko's regime, but this particular uh, arrest was was uh, was of a of a new kind. It seemed like it was transnational, as as, the, as Freedom House would put it. Right? It's it's a breach of air traffic uh, rules that happens in a in a different country, and it's it's a particularly lawless behavior coming from a regime that is uh, that is already seen as anti democratic, but not necessarily as infringing upon, you know, the, the law of the air. Um, and, you know, I, I wanted to get a sense from both of you as to how uh, you think the, the, the international community is woken, is, is waking up to the, uh, to the, to the rogue nature of the regime. Do you s- still see a gap between what uh, the conversations that are being held in Europe and, and, and Washington? Uh, do you see them still as being sort of uh, missing the mark and, and missing the, the real nature of the regime, or do you, do, you, do you think that we're kind of coming around to this to this consensus understanding that Lukashenko is you know a rogue figure that will stop at nothing to to keep a, a grip on power? Starting with uh, Hannah, and then turning back to Vlad. Sure. Um, well, I think what has been happening in Belarus since August is a sign that Lukashenko, well, firstly, lost support of um, of the people of Belarus. He's not popular anymore and people want him to go. So that's something that the West should consider. Lukashenko uh, has rigged the elections and the West did not recognize the election results. And the West has done a lot, obviously, I think more than we all expected. Um, At the same time, it was not able to force Lukashenko to leave his office. Um, So since the West did not recognize the election results in August, more should be done to make sure that a new election free and fair, and under international observation is organized in Belarus as soon as possible this year. Um, Because the longer crisis continues, the um, more difficult it's going to be to rebuild the country. Um, And um, I think now for people, there is this understanding, this kind of... um, Because people understand that there is no way back and they're not ready to find a compromise and agree that Lukashenko should stay because this is not only about some salaries or income issues or something that Lukashenko might satisfy. This is about, you know, ethical values. This is about human rights, political values. And um, um, people kind of just, just, this is not only about Lukashenko and, you know, um, some laws that he might change. So, too much, too many things have to change. And that's that's kind of why Lukashenko himself should understand that he needs to work towards the solution of the crisis. He's not listening to people. So because there is pressure inside the country, there might not be mass rallies at the moment because the level of repression is just too insane. It's incredible. Um, since August, there have been more than 35,000 people who, who were detained the number of political prisoners is constantly growing. 2,000 people have been detained for political reasons. So it's just uh, it's just very dangerous for people to, to protest. But there is pressure. And because Lukashenko understands that, um, well, he's not supported, the, ma- the majority wants change. Um, and then 
the West should increase pressure as well. And this is not only about sanctions, about sanctioning a few people who were uh, kind of related to this incident with the, with the Ryan airplane, but this is about the solution, the comprehensive approach to, towards the solution of the political and human rights crisis in Belarus. This is about new elections and negotiations held as soon as possible. And here the West does have leverage. And um, yeah, it should just do more to make sure that um, negotiations are being held and then uh, new elections take place. So yeah, uh, uh, Hannah is, is very wise on, on these issues. So I, I, uh, I just want to add a little bit to what she's saying. Everything she's saying is completely true. Um, maybe just to reframe the lens to go back a, a, a little bit uh, higher to the geopolitical level um, on the uh, uh, bilateral level with, with neighbors. Uh, Lukashenko is very cunning, and one of his survival strategies was always to pit his uh, opponents against one another and to have uh, two-faced relations with, with both his main patron, which was which is which is Moscow now, but wasn't the case a year ago that that, that he didn't have any other patrons, and also to have uh, selectively uh, civilized relationships with neighbors. So the relationship with Ukraine until very recently was was pretty civilized. They, there was an, uh, intelligence gathering uh, uh, going back between Kiev and Minsk. There were there was quiet electricity sales. There was there was quiet business. There was a uh, hard guarantee of Ukraine's territorial sovereignty in the north on the Chernigiv border. Uh, there was a promise. A uh, rock solid promise that there, there was not going to be a- any Russian soldiers uh, operating on the Ukrainian border. There were not going to be new bases opening next to Ukraine on the on the northern border. There were not going to be uh, uh, strenuous passport checks. There were all sorts of good things that 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 Kiev could rely on from from the Minsk side because. Uh, Lukashenko was very much interested in having a balanced relationship with the West to the extent that he could get away with what he could get away with and Russia. His basic problem is one of survival against Moscow. He does not want to be the governor of a region in uh, the expanded Russian Federation or uh, a newfound Russian Empire. He wants to be the uh, uh, king of his own little kingdom, his own little hermit kingdom. And he's willing to uh, uh, keep Putin at arm's length to the extent possible in order to keep the gas and the electricity flowing and uh, to be as possible, as much as possible, friendly with the Europeans and the Americans. This uh, dance and song routine went on for a very long time and it was fairly successful. Uh, And even as recently as about uh, two years ago, you had the national security advisor of President Trump uh, arriving in Minsk. You had Minsk as the main platform for negotiations between France, Germany, the Ukrainians, and the Russians, and the, uh, the uh, quote-unquote independent republics, separatist republics in uh, southern eastern Ukraine. Uh, all that's history. Can you imagine going to Minsk now to negotiate anything with anybody? Uh, there's no flights there now, quite rightly. So this is, this is him understanding and pragmatically cutting off his relationship with the West and saying, okay, there's no going back now. My people don't support me anymore. I can only rely on parts of my elite and on my security services and intelligence services because no other sector of a society on Moss supports me. I have one friend now and he doesn't love me and he doesn't even love himself. His name is President Putin 
And uh, if I have to cut off relations with uh, the West by uh, showing them my fist and taking 94 Lithuanian citizens hostage for seven hours, I'm willing to do it because there are not going to be any more field trips from the National Security Advisor of the United States President to Minsk because I'm arresting 35,000 people. Thanks, Vlad, for this um, geopolitical analysis. I, I want to push you a little bit more on, on this issue because Russian support has been pretty pretty clear over the past few days. There's been the announcement of a $500 million loan and an increase in flights to Belarus while the EU has been cutting its flight to Belarus. And yet there also seems to have been a bit of frustration and uh, you know, feeling of uh, being a bit annoyed with Belarus among uh, Russian diplomats and Russian leader you know, over Lukashenko's rash decision only days before the summits in, on the 16th of June between Vladimir Putin and Joe Biden. Um, does Lukashenko think he can afford to go rogue? Because Putin will have to, no matter what, begrudgingly back him. Um, and to circle back to the North Korea comparison you made in your foreign policy article, is the Belarus-Russia relationship comparable to one between North Korea and China, with a rogue international actor who is backed by an embarrassed big brother who has no other choice. Uh, Vlad, and then we'll uh, circle back to Hannah. Yeah, I think the Chinese example, metaphor, simile, parallel, whatever, is uh, perfect. Uh, and that's exactly where we are, and it's exactly the direction that Lukashenko is going in by closing off the country more and more to outsiders, to... Uh, people leaving without permission, without permits. It's very much the case that he is a liability for the Kremlin. He's annoying. He's erratic. He uh, is egotistical. They see him as a difficult problem that needs to be managed somehow correctly in their periphery. But they don't love him. They don't even like him. Uh, they, they see him as a tough negotiator. They see him as a, uh, a foreign. They see him as a liability. On the other hand, they're not willing to have uh, power in Belarus change from what they see as the street. They're not willing to have power change uh, through any kind of democratic uprising because that creates an, a completely inescapable precedent for for them themselves in the Kremlin. They, they can't have that. They cannot tolerate it. It, it just, it's on, a, on, on, on escapably uh, wrong. They can't, they can't deal with it. It's bad. So what are they doing? They're, they're giving him support, but as little as possible. I mean, it's very frosty support. They know that they have to give him as much as they can get away with, and they're interested in extracting whatever they can in terms of security guarantees, uh, in, in terms of more bases, in terms of resources. They would strip Belarus dry for parts and for companies, which they would reallocate to their own people and to Russian businesses if they could. Uh, you know, in, in many ways, there are a lot of untapped resources and uh, state-owned companies in Belarus. Uh, those are very attractive assets. You could just take them. They're not owned by private individuals. Belarus has never uh, undergone a decommunization process. Those assets are owned by the state. You can just take them. You can give them to your cousin, to your to your viceroy, to your legate, to your friends, uh, to your nephews, to people you need to reward for loyalty. 
it's a it's a pinata for for Putin and his people, and also they would like to assimilate it with as little blood as possible on the ground, and with a few uh, costs as possible from from the West, and they are willing to do that under certain circumstances uh, and under a certain price point. That price point is being continuously negotiated and renegotiated by Lukashenko, who wants to keep his freedom and does not want to be uh, kept in a little safe house outside of Rostov uh, in the way that uh, former Ukrainian president Nikovic is being kept in a little safe house, which he can't leave for the rest of his life. And he can't go anywhere because of all the things that he did. So it's it's a kind of three-way push-pull between the liberal democratic opposition, who who are representative of about 75% of the population, maybe 80, uh, Lukashenko, and Moscow. And it's a dance between the three of them. So, Hannah, what do you make of um, this analysis from Vlad? And also, Vlad mentioned a bit earlier, um, this project of a Russian-Belarus union. Um, is that is that more realistic now that Belarus is essentially isolated and can only count on Russian support? Well, definitely, Vladimir Putin, firstly, he's not obviously a big fan of Alexander Lukashenko. Right, but he doesn't see an alternative. He just doesn't. He wants to maintain the status quo, and he wants to have Lukashenko weak and controlled. And um, the more Lukashenko is weakened, uh, the more controlled he is for Vladimir Putin. And in August, I remember when there were mass protests, and Lukashenko was so scared. He basically for a week he um, did not kind of appear. He did not know what to do. And then he called, called his friend um, in Moscow and he asked him for, for support. And um, immediately, like Putin obviously said that uh, it's an internal issue of Belarusians to resolve the, the political crisis. It's, it's up to them. But then he promised to help with a, a police uh, reserve. He promised to send a police to Belarus if uh, protests would, would, would go violent. And obviously, this perhaps would, would never have happened, but this support, financial, um, moral, political, diplomatic, even military support, is important for Lukashenko. Um, but then I'm wondering for how long actually Vladimir Putin is going to support him. Um, because this is just not paying back, right? So you asking about the union state, but then if there are, there might be some short-term gains, right, that, that um, Putin might have, might receive from Belarus, but signing any long-term agreements, having any long-term commitments is not uh, that, you know, sure, because, well, who knows what's going to happen to Lukashenko next year if he is still going to stay in power? Does it make sense for Vladimir Putin to kind of sign such commit sign such agreements, whatever that they might have in mind, right? So I would say that for now the Kremlin might be oriented, um, kind of focus on some short-term gains potentially, um, and obviously having Lukashenko as weak as possible, right? Um, I think that. The Kremlin might be thinking of um, growing, let's say, an alternative inside the country, someone who is going to be pro-Russian, but who would have enough political capital to 
um, be influential enough, right? So the, the raw, that's why there are talks about the constitutional reform, and that's something that the Kremlin is kind of expecting, is forcing, is, uh, um, is well, yeah, forcing Lukashenko to do, right? Um, that would make the president of the country weaker, and that would make the parliament stronger. But But Lukashenko also understands that. And he, that's why this pro-Russian party was not registered recently. So that was kind of another, another sign. Well, there is this friendship which we see. They, there are laughs, there are hacks. They, you know, swim, they meet. But generally, if you see the Kremlin, Russia, Putin is not that influential. He doesn't, Putin does not have so much influence over Lukashenko. He also understands that, right? So he was not able to force Lukashenko to have the constitutional reform or to sign some uh, roadmaps, as they call additional roadmaps um, for this union state. Um, and there are kind of also questions, right? To what extent Russia is capable of realizing its plan, let's say, to have someone um, uh, who is able to become an alternative to Alexander Lukashenko or to proceed with integration? Because this integration so far was only um, on paper. Well, let's turn to the, let's try to, uh, uh, you know, zero in on this issue of, of sanctions and how the EU particularly is, is approaching uh, the challenge. Uh, you know, as, as uh, I think Hannah said towards the beginning, the um, the, the rigged uh, race back in October uh, already was already followed by by a, a fair amount of, you know, a round of sanctions, uh, and and um, and the important thing about this uh, this um, uh, this uh, this particular scenario is that the European leaders are now uh, are now uh, discussing how important it is to to set a precedent for this particular breach, right? Uh, the, again, the transnational scope of the the um, uh, the effects, right? And and there there needs to be a strong precedent. You know, uh, rigged elections are more of a routine of a routine thing uh, for regimes of this nature, it seems. But when it comes to uh, um, you know infringing upon uh, European airspace uh, beyond uh, Belarus's borders, this is really a, a precedent that that the EU as a whole seems willing to set so that no other actions of the of this sort are, t- are taken. And so. As the, the both of you were, were discussing earlier, there's now uh, talk of, you know, there being greater coordination with, with the Americans on targeted sanctions following the, uh, the arrest. And, uh, you know, every time this happens, it, it seems like we're, we're thrown back into the, uh, the conversation of how much can sanctions really achieve. And I wanted to get some clarity from both of you on, on uh, you know, where do you see that conversation? How do you envision the, the battle lines um, uh, kind of falling into place in the EU? Where do you see the allies? It seems like France is driving a really strong message around strategic autonomy that is that is uh, getting a, a lot of allies in, in the, the Council of the EU, but there's still, uh, I mean, the, the, the Belarus question, the way it is discussed in the EU is, is it's largely as part of this EU-Russia uh, conundrum, right? So where do you think that the roadblocks are going to come from when it comes to having a strong uh, sanctions posture and a beefed-up sanctions posture against uh, Belarus going going forward. Uh, we'll we'll start uh, with Vlad and then turn to to Hanna. So, Anna. you know, taking a, a plane is just such an aggressive move that it just intimates that the person that you did it to is a complete and total weakling. The idea that you could do this to someone is is just the idea that you're going to spit in their face, 
that they're not going to do anything about it. And you're going to see how far you can take it. So Lukashenko obviously bought into uh, the widespread view in some circles that the European Union is a paper tiger that punches below its weight uh, in terms of geopolitical uh, deployment of hard force and hard power. And that is obviously something that is uh, fair to say, that the Europeans are not particularly good at solving problems using force. Uh, Brussels is a response to the horrors of World War II, and they prefer multilateral solutions to difficult issues. There were no good solutions with uh, uh, the Balkans uh, 20 years ago. Uh, they, they, they've not been able to do very much in terms of solving a hard war on their own doorstep in Ukraine, where a, uh, a neighbor state, a friendly state, which is dependent on them and on the Canadians and the Americans, has had a chunk of its territory taken. And they've not been uh, particularly capable of stemming uh, incoming migration from, uh, from, from the ocean or from Syria uh, after, after the bombing of Syria by the Russian Air Force. So the European Union, to Lukashenko and to Putin, does not look like it's particularly good at solving problems using force. So he does this to see how far he can get away with it. And I've even had joking conversations with friends of mine uh, at two in the morning over drinks where we, we would think, do you, you know, do you think the European Union paid the Ryanair uh, flights uh, landing fee at Minsk International Airport? You know? uh, and, and some of us think that if, uh, if that bill was sent to Brussels, that there will be at least a dozen countries in the European Union who would be willing to pay that bill. Uh, so certainly, they, they absurdly to me just paid the, uh, uh, the, the essentially the ransom on an opposition leader in Georgia. The, the European Union does pay uh, uh, exorbitant, ridiculous fees for all sorts of things in other places. So it's not, it's not really a joke, or as Russians say, there's an element of a joke in every joke, right? Uh, it seems obvious to me that there were, until two weeks ago or a week and a half ago, lots of people in Brussels who were willing to let this problem simmer and go away because they see it as uh, part and parcel of dealing with Moscow. They didn't, see, they didn't see Minsk as separate from Moscow. They saw it as a package deal. You deal with the Russians on this and you deal with the Chinese on that. You want something done in North Korea, you have to talk to the Chinese. You want something done uh, with, with Lukashenko, you really have to talk to the Russians. Uh, the Belarus opposition really had two friends, the Poles and the Lithuanians. It now has a lot more friends because e even the British, who are no longer part of the European Union, say, hold on a second, this, this is completely unacceptable. This is a, a major, major security threat to Europe on our doorstep. You know? So it, it seems to be obvious that the, those people, uh, let, let's say countries who are further away from the Russian border, the Portuguese are less concerned with this issue than the than the, the, the than the Poles and the Estonians are, are having many fewer arguments in their favor in those debates in those policy debates in Brussels, and uh, it seems to me obvious that they're not going to be able to get away without doing something serious. And uh, Hannah, what's your uh, what's your view on the sanctions uh, challenge? Obviously, as Vlad says. Uh, we, we've heard a lot of uh, the, the polls have been really, um, uh, you know, um, 
banging a steady drum about sanctions on Belarus. Uh, there's there, there will be some 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 opposition to that to that stance. Uh, but what's your take on this? Being being aware also that the opposition for for a long time and really uh, uh, from the uh, the uh, since the October race has been asking for a much tougher stance from the EU as a whole than we're currently getting. So what's how do you see that gap, and do you think it will change? Sure. So um, yeah, sanctions again, right? The West doesn't have many tools how to how it can influence the situation in Belarus. And sanctions um, are one of those tools. Um, there are several issues here. Firstly, we have individual sanctions. Then we have economic or sectorial sanctions or financial sanctions. There are different kind of types of sanctions. Um, people are generally in favor of individual sanctions um, against, you know, imposed on perpetrators and in, on those who were involved in human rights abuses and police violence. Um, in the kind of rigging the elections. And um, it's very hard, obviously, to analyze and get this information, kind of to uh, have opinion polls in Belarus, because that's independent sociology is, um, is not allowed, is forbidden. Um, but among protesters, um, pro- audience, um, among those protesters who are, who are against Lukashenko, there are many people who are in fa- favor of sanctions. Then... Um, the situation in Belarus looks like um, kind of the Rasavro myths, the Rasavro stereotypes, and propaganda obviously uses the uh, the issue of sanctions against the the opposition, against the pro democracy movement, showing that it's going to affect the economy, it's going to worsen the um, level of life uh, in Belarus, and, and kind of make uh, the situation uh, you know unbearable for ordinary citizens. The thing is. There are already well. There is already a crisis. Um, there is already inflation. People are being fired from state-owned enterprises. P- workers are not allowed to strike. Uh, are not allowed to um, basically have any kind of opposition, uh, you know, opinions. Right. Um, then there is this uh, myth and stereotype about um, Belarus being more dependent on Russia if sanctions, especially economic and financial sanctions, are being imposed. Then here I have also kind of uh, a response to that. Uh, Belarus is already dependent, and I have uh, I'm wondering to what extent it might get even more dependent because a lot of um, kind of products, a lot of um, goods from state-owned enterprises are already being sold to, to Russia, to the Russian market, so it just doesn't have kind of more room, more capacity to, to buy more from Belarus. Um, and then if we look at history, throughout Belarusian history, um, there were sanctions already, right? It's not the first time when sanctions were imposed. And uh, Lukashenko never gave up his pro-Russian orientation and cooperation with the Kremlin, um, despite sanctions being imposed or lifted. Um, so so that's kind of, I would say that without sanctions, uh, there would be kind of financial sustainability of Lukashenko himself and his regime, and sanctions would have to cut his finances and finances of his oligarchs. And here we come to to the importance of kind of having more targeted approach, more imposing more painful sanctions and targeting those who really... Um, uh, have, uh, you know, hold finances who support the regime um, because even if lifted or avoided altogether, um, those economic sanctions still interrupt the business cycle 
and raise risks for business people close to Lukashenko. Lukashenko is becoming very toxic to to those people, to those oligarchs. So we have all these kind of different types of sanctions, and the EU should really, and the West general, generally, right, should, should consider um, tougher sanctions indeed. So um, speaking of sanctions and um, situation in Belarus, um, how is it possible that despite all this adversity, despite all this tension, despite all of this, also the, the handling of COVID has been pretty poor in Belarus, um, how do we explain the fact that Lukashenko was seemingly on his last legs only a few months ago. There was even some rumour circulating that he was considering resignation. Now, fast forward to today, and you know, despite all the protests, despite the mishandling of COVID, despite the sanctions, he's still standing as defiant as ever. What are the remaining sources of legitimacy of his regime? What does it stand on? And how has he managed to overturn the situation, given how uh, bleak it was for him only a few months ago? Uh, we'll start with Vlad and circle back to Hannah. It's very simple. Force and entropy, the forces of gravity and the forces of violence. He is still in power because the elites around him have not cracked and because the intelligence organs and the security organs have compromised on all of them. No one wants to be the first one to jump. No one wants to be the last one to jump in that situation either. But it's true that Lots of the elites around him were dependent on him financially and who have money in, uh, in the States or a Swiss bank account and uh, a villa somewhere in France or Italy. They, they know that they will never be able to go to the West in order to see their assets ever again uh, if they jump too fast or too soon. It, it's very difficult to crack a tight-knit elite like that. But it is very easy to, to uh, beat people into submission. And the fact that the Belarus people have for nine months been taken to the streets, despite the concerted repression, despite the winter cold, and a Belarus winter is not like a Finnish winter, but it's pretty unpleasant. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's cold enough that people are not going to be going out to get beat every day in large numbers if, uh, if, if they don't feel that there's something going to happen at the end of it. So he's not broken the spirit of the population. He has not exhausted them. He has not created enough attrition in order to make them stop. But he has proved that he can keep his security organs brainwashed, bribed, onside, for a long enough time in order to wait out the opposition. And actually, I'm in many ways amazed that this happened because I really expected him to just do nothing because time was on his side. It wasn't on the side of the opposition. Every day and every week and every month that this process continues without a breakthrough, it just puts more and more exhaustion on the side of the of the Belarus Democratic opposition, right? Nine months is a very long time to continue going out into the streets without seeing very many results. And in many ways, what we're going to have now is a revitalization of the opposition and a revitalization of the attention and largesse, hopefully, that we Americans and uh, we Europeans give to the opposition and also to the uh, sanctions support. I mean, for, for another two, three months, this is going to be on every front page of every newspaper in Europe and in the world. And 
in many ways, that's a really radical thing to have done if what you're trying to do is to wait out the opposition. I don't quite understand why he did that. Uh, is he erratic? Did Putin make him do this in order to bind him to him? Is this uh, something that he did to make life more difficult for Putin? Did he just think that there would not be this large of a response? Was this just a miscalculation? It's very difficult to say. Hmm. Um, speaking of, of repression, Anna, um, can you explain a little bit what has been going on in, in Belarus over the past few months? I know there's been uh, tens of thousands of people who've gone, been arrested for protesting. Uh, there's been some pretty bleak images of, um, of people being seemingly tortured. Um, what can we, uh, more generally on the situation of repression, but also what can we expect for Romran Potasevich over the next few weeks? Right. Um, so I would, um, so I would say that, well, firstly, Lukashenko is uh, scared. Vlad said that um, time was working for him, but I would say that, um, as you know, there is this obviously tiredness and fatigue among protesters, but there is tiredness and fatigue among um, Lukashenko's officials, among Lukashenko's security forces, among oligarchs, among his power vertical. It's really expensive to maintain the status quo. It's really expensive to... Um, tell your security forces to go and repress citizens every day, basically, on a daily basis. Um, and the time was not working for him. And it was a cumulative effect. And because Lukashenko understands that he uh, is shaken and he is backed in a corner, he has to increase the level of repressions. And that's why the plane was forced down, because they are just focused on how to survive, basically, and how to threaten his opponents, how to finish and this forever. And they're going to increase, increase, increase the level of repressions. And that's what we've been observing in the past um, months, and especially in the past weeks. Um, two weeks ago, the most largest, the most influential um, media outlet, Tutbai, was practically demolished. Its website is, is being ban banned right now. Journalist and editor-in-chief remain in prison. Their apartments were searched. Um, their offices in Minsk and other cities were raided. Um, and this is something, I don't even know how to compare it, but two-thirds of the population that has access to internet used to buy. Basically, everybody in the country, those who are for Lukashenko, those who are against, read to buy. And... I don't even know what else Lukashenko can do to journalist community in Belarus in order to kind of threaten it, to scare it, to destroy it, uh, than to demolish Dubai, right? So that's kind of the meaning of, of this, uh, of what happened to, to this media outlet. Then a political prisoner died in prison because of a cardiac arrest. And it's just not really clear what led to this because his wife says that uh, he did not have any heart issues. Then the plane happened. Today, um, another political prisoner, uh, Stepan Vatipov, attempted to cut his throat while on trial. A few days ago, a, um, a teenager, well, he's 18, right? But he, he was arrested uh, when he was 17. Um, this, this young man uh, committed suicide. So the atmosphere in the country is horrible. Um, and... 
it's going to be even worse because of this trauma that people have since August, you know, because of all these repressions. People have been detained for walking downtown, for wearing socks in white and red colors, which are the colors of, of the national flag, the white, red, white flag. And this is just so irrational, so insane, um, because, again, because of this fear that Lukashenko has. And he understands that, you know, he just needs to count days, months or, you know, weeks uh, for how long he stays in power. Well, thank you, Anna, and thank you, Vlad, for coming on Common Decency. Thank you so much for this conversation on, on Belarus, on what happened with Ryanair flight and the more general, general geopolitical situation with Belarus using that position to play a balancing act between the EU and Russia and that balancing act being broken, which really leads the question of what's next for Belarus. Thank you so much, Anna. Thank you very much, Vlad. And uh, to all of you, see you next week. Well, Francois, you seem to concur with Vlad that uh, Belarus is, is increasingly playing uh, playing the role of uh, Europe's North Korea. What's what's your general sense on this episode we've just uh, finished? Yeah, I think um, beyond the obvious comparison of a regime that is becoming increasingly authoritarian, that is closing its borders to its own citizens, which is something I think, with the exception of COVID, we haven't seen in a very, very long time. Um, but more generally, I think the idea of Belarus being this rogue actor which knows it will begrudgingly get, no matter what it does, the support of the Russian big brother is in many ways similar to what you see in with China and North Korea, with the Chinese supporting no matter what North Korea, even when North Korea does acts of provocation, which really puts China in a very tight spot. Um, I think it's a very interesting comparison. Um, I also think that it, it seems from my understanding that Putin has a lot more ways he can influence North, uh, sorry, uh, Belarusian politics than North Korean politics. So I was really interested by what Anna said about the idea that um, how long will Putin's support for Alexander Lukashenko last for? Because my understanding was Lukashenko is annoying, Lukashenko is erratic, but face, we have to deal with it. And in many ways... Um, it seems that you know Putin is capable of pushing a, an, uh, an alternative to Lukashenko, a pro-Russian alternative to Lukashenko, and uh, now it makes me think a lot of um, the relationship P uh, Putin has with Assad. Um, you know, every, every once in a while, Assad will do something which is extremely provocative and put Russia in a tight spot. And so you always hear articles about how Putin is thinking about pushing a pro-Russian figure. Uh, alternative, which will be more acceptable to the Europeans, but it never actually materialized itself. But maybe in this case, it will. Um, yeah, so I, th I think it's an interesting situation. And, and, and again, something else which I thought was interesting is, um, you know, as students of international relations, you always tend to think of actors, you know, pursuing their, their national interests and being rational. Um, there's a real question here of to what extent was Lukashenko's decision rational? To what extent was it just completely erratic or, or a poor calculation for Miss Bar. Um, it seems like it was kind of last minute because a flight was about to enter Lithuanian airspace when the MiG intercepted it um, and forced it to land in Minsk. So maybe they realized they had an opportunity and they didn't want to let it go and so they didn't have time to kind of think of the consequences. So I think it's something really interesting when you have to consider the way international relations play is, you know, individual decisions and, 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 and erratic decision-making can really contradict the way we approach it as states being rational actors.
pursuing their national self-interest. Well, it seemed like uh, it seemed like the the Palestinian uh, alibi really gave uh, Lukashenko the 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 kind of the upper hand in this respect, right? It seems like as the plane was about to, um, I think it was uh, so as the plane was about to reach uh, Lithuanian airspace, the plane ended up, although it wasn't initially uh, intending to, it ended kind of taking the safe uh, option of. Uh, saying, well, we we don't know whether there's actually a, a Hamas bomb in this uh, plane. It doesn't seem likely, but we're not going to risk it. Uh, so they, it seemed like they just handled it just under the wire, and and it things turned out just surprisingly smoothly for for uh, Lukashenko's. And, uh, and, and to be honest, if I'm the pilot on that Ryanair flight and I've got a MiG twenty nine telling me you must land in Minsk, um, I'm 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 not sure I would disobey him. To be perfectly yeah. honest. And, and, you know, and, and yeah, you know, it, it certainly made for, for a really interesting sort of uh, thriller uh, plot to to um, uh, to kind of trace uh, how each side was was um, was playing its hand at, at each point in time. I don't think that airlines have any sort of like policy when it comes to handling uh, terrorist threats. I think the general policy is just to, to play it safe. And, you know, in this particular case, it, it didn't seem like there was much resistance to landing the plane in Minsk, which turned out. Uh, which which turned this whole operation into a, a successful one for Lukashenko. So I think it things were were a little arbitrary at, uh, uh, in, in how they played out. Yeah, uh, I also wanted to say on a on a side note that uh, Vlad's parties in Paris seem very fun, um, and uh, in, the, in the in the games they're playing, trying to guess what the EU would do uh, for going music. Because uh, j- jokes aside, I think I think he he is right. I think the instinct. Of the EU is you no know, not to create havoc, not to not to shake the um, shake the situation too much, and um, and you know and and the idea of, of them paying the bill is, is amusing, um, but it's it's probably not too far away from from the kind of natural impulse. It has changed a little bit, and I see there's been a lot of kind of uh, stronger rhetoric than usual, uh, but it took it took a Airjacking, you know, took a kind of modern day piracy act for people to 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 um, um to shake it off, and um also want to think a bit about um, Roman Potasevich. I, I can't imagine being that plane. Uh, first of all, flying over your 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 country, which you have left, you have fled. You know, you probably have mixed feelings about this, and um, then as about as you're about to enter Lithuanian airspace. You can see the plane turning back. You might even see the MiG from his window. And the progressive feeling of dread take him over as he realizes there's no bomb, they're here for me. Um, and knowing fully well what's going to happen if he, he lands in Minsk it must be so incredibly terrifying. It's a kind of modern horror movie. Um, and um, I, I do have the international tension. We'll make sure that he uh, puts progression revolution regime and they can't get away with uh, with too much hardship, but uh, really must have been a horrifying experience. But anyways, um, on that slightly bleak note, um, it's the end of the episode. Don't forget, if you want to share your support, there's many ways you can do so. Uh, you can subscribe on Spotify. You can rate on Apple Podcasts. You can write and review on your podcast platform. These are always great. Always put a smile on our face and always gives us the extra boost to keep going. We've got some really fantastic episodes lining up over the next few weeks. So really stay tuned 
Um, no spoilers, but some great shows coming up. And uh, yeah, thank you, thank you, Jorge, thank you, Glenn, thank you, Anna.